It's like backstage, but there's no stage. It's the standby for places green room. Welcome to In the Green Room. Hey, everybody. Welcome to In the Green Room. I'm Alexandra Kopko, and I'm here today with Kurt Shineman, the writer of Stripping Lord Byron, an excellent play with an excellent cast um, <laughs> that is uh, premiering on Standby for Places. Kurt, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. It's so nice to see you. I, I very much enjoyed hearing you say such eloquent things and seeing your beautiful face in rehearsals. Oh, I so enjoyed rehearsals. And Alexandra, it was really great to meet you and the rest of the cast and to know your experience with Lord Byron as a playwright, because you had done a few of Lord Byron plays. I had. There are very few producible Byron plays. So it's just fascinating that you had done a few because that just really uh, brought you into the world of Lord Byron's play uh, for stripping. I had no idea he was a playwright until I did the plays. Did you know a lot about Lord Byron before you wrote this play? Well, I think like many other people, I was probably uh, asked to read a few of his poems when uh, we were in maybe high school or college lit class. But I really actually got to know Lord Byron when I was assistant directing a play called Educating Rita. Oh, yes, I know it well. My mom was in it in the 80s. And do you know there was a there's a poem in there about the sick rose, mm. and so I had done all this research about, you know, who wrote this, and then you know all the stuff about those kind of uh, poems at the time, and you know what do they mean, and all those kind of things, and so knowing about that, but then I kind of forgot about him because his poetry is very lyrical and uh, not very performable. And I like poetry that you can perform, you know, that you can use to speak aloud and everybody knows what you're saying. But his <laughs> is poetry that's usually meant to be read and mm. digested over a slow amount of time. Do you have a, a favorite poet or a couple favorite poets? I am a fan of Laurie Anderson, and I would say she's a performance art poet. I like a lot of performance art poetry, but... Um, it was a, a while back when I was reading uh, this magazine that ran an article about Lord Byron and burning his memoirs and his letters that I thought, oh, that's awful. Uh, what would that be like today? And it was around the same time that we were getting all upset about missing emails and destroying public documents and I thought, well, how does this apply to an artist? You know, um, what should we do to artists' notes and artists' letters? And should they be given to a, a archive like University of Texas at Austin or Arizona State? What should we do with these letters? And who should be in charge of keeping those things alive? I mean, think if we'd had Shakespeare's letters, what it would be like. And uh, I, I just then started reading some of his poetry. And I think because I was older, I could, I could read it better, mm -hmm. maybe. Uh, it made more sense now. I knew how to follow the punctuation and, and I knew what to look for. Mm -hmm. uh, I knew what a Byronic hero was and how to work through that kind of coded messaging that was in his poetry. They're, they're long poems usually. So then I started thinking about crafting a play about Lord Byron leaving his memoirs to 
five people that uh, had to sign off on it to uh, publish it. He wanted it published, but he also wanted it to destroy some of his competitors and wanted to destroy some of his so-called friends. And I didn't know anything about John Murray and the celebrity poet uh, Thomas More. And I didn't know about his um, Cambridge days and his good friend John Cam Hobhouse, which he'd often call Hobby. And of course, his crazy relationship with his ex-wife, Lady Byron, and his mistress, um, Lady Lee, and all the crazy gossip of their dysfunctional relationships. So I thought, put them all in a room together to decide what to do about these memoirs. And it becomes wickedly funny. I, I wholeheartedly agree. It's very funny. And it, what a crucible for, for drama. I like the idea of the crucible too. I think that uh, there's a lot of dramatic irony also happening in this play. Uh, it kind of makes you want to listen to it twice once you know some of the revelations and you go, oh, and you want to go back and listen to those tantalizing omissions, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and there's a lot of fire going on under the surface as there is in the fire grate. So there's a lot of really Byronic metaphors going on. And, you know, we forget that he was one of the best-selling poets, best-selling authors. I mean, it was he and Jane Austen. Mm -hmm. So people read uh, about Byron like he was a celebrity. He was so famous for being famous. You know, and he was very good looking and he did lots of uh, shenanigans, lots of uh, crazy behaviors. Um, they say that uh, he was an inspiration for uh, major characters in Frankenstein and uh, right, he inspired- he was with the Shelleys, wasn't he? He would go party in Geneva with them. Yeah, he even inspired Dracula, Bram right. Stoker. Because he, uh, wrote, he, wrote, he wrote what is considered the first or one of the first vampire stories, right? Yeah. So there was a, there was a lot, you know, and then there's Don Juan and, you know, he was such a, a gallivanting, I don't know what would be the proper word now, but he was a very fanciful uh, bed jumper. Mm -hmm. And his crazy oh. stuff with all his pets. He had tons of pets. He had weird That's pets. I did not know until this play and I am now fascinated by it. He had like a menagerie. He had a fox. He had a peacock, he had a pig, he had a parrot or two, two parrots. <laughs> he was like um, the blueprint for the eccentric celebrity who gets like shot to stardom and then sleeps with everybody and gets a bunch of animals. Can't imagine what it would be like today with uh, Twitter or, you know, like TikTok. He'd be dancing with his pig or something. <laughs> and I would watch it. Well, he was very handsome, right? He had these great curls and girls and boys liked him. You know, he's, plus they wore very tight clothes, so they. Oh yeah, those breeches. Those breeches. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm not opposed to those making a comeback personally. Well, and this was right before the Gilded Age, right? So the women were not dressed as fanciful as they are in the Gilded Age, but you start to see that change. And so the women would be dressed in beautiful, costumes you can imagine you know they'd be wearing feathers and they'd be wearing embroidery kind of very fanciful dresses and the men would be wearing these very layered and textual just scrumptious clothes 
which we would see if this production was a live stage production. Um, but we're, it's interestingly a, an audio theater production. Did you have that possibility in mind when you were writing it? Was it a, a surprise? How, how has it been approaching it from an audio stance? That's a very good question. <laughs> I like language. I like argument. I like uh, how people communicate. And we communicated probably more lushly with words and the power of words in Byron's time. You know, we, we used a variety of attacks with language. And now if we want to fight, we just pull out a gun. So uh, they used words very um, powerfully and, and, and poetically and all of them. I mean, there was much more education in this one group with words than a lot of other characters. You know, it's not middle Midwest. It's uh, this is London there. They have lots of education. So they have layers and layers of um, words that they like to play around with. And so they're very, even when they get drunk, they're clever. We fall down when we get drunk, but they have the ability to come up with great phrases and uh, sly attacks with all of their language rather than turn into a fist fight. And, and this was through layers, right? We had even the uh, high ups, but also, you know, even the maid. We have a great maid in this. Uh, her name is Bridget, and I think you might know her because that's your character. Yeah, I'm vaguely familiar. And she would read. She, you know, they had lots of. They read. That was, they. They wrote letters. They. Their communication was not just emojis, right? So, it was a lush time. So it translates to, I think, to podcasting, well, because you can talk about what you're doing and use the words to describe things. You don't have to have a narrator, and you don't have to have a person coming in and doing stage directions. Mm -hmm. Did you find that in rehearsal you? you notice moments that needed tweaking to fit the medium or? Just a few, because I write pretty visually. So uh, when I worked with the director, Grady Gund, uh, I had to work on clarifying th some things that they would refer to, like there's a time when they grab the memoirs. And you'd see that if we were doing a live performance, but here we had to clarify what that meant when someone would say put that down well, right. what is that and we just had to clarify put the manuscript down or um get your hands out of the fire instead of get out you right. know? so and um, um, we had to clarify some of that because those are hard sound effects to do yeah and, uh, to me uh, we had some fully experts in the crew but uh those are hard to fully you mentioned uh our illustrious director, the lovely Grady Gunn, who you've worked with before, right? I have. And Grady is exceptional when it comes to especially listening. He knows how to feel the characters through the voice. And so he uh, also can identify little stumbles like, oh, this part doesn't make sense. How can we clarify this? So he will send me a note and I'll make some revisions. Um, Grady and I worked on a previous play together called Good Grief, and it was produced at the Athena Theater in 2019, pre-COVID. And then I had him come out to Arizona, and he produced it out here. It was just for a short reading around 9-11 so that we could discuss grief and terrorism. But Grady uh, was looking for a play, so I sent him this, and he really enjoyed the Byron poetry and uh, the development of the characters and the conflict. There's some Byron poetry featured in the piece. 
and some some slightly tweaked Byron poetry as well. How did you choose which ones to feature? What? How did that speak to you? Well, I read a lot of Byron poetry. <laughs> And he has a lot of very long poems. He has a few that are very, very short, you know, maybe eight stanzas. But I discovered one of his poems, which was a a letter to a playwright. And I just thought, well, this is wonderful. It's about a play. And it's as if it is an editor or one of his readers writing to the playwright on what's good and bad about this play. So it almost creates this meta uh, feeling during the play. I thought who else would be best to word his magical poetry, his just very lyrical poems, uh, but the maid, Bridget. And uh, it's a tough component of the play, but we finally get to hear what Byron would say. And his voice is missing in the play slightly because he's dead. And they've just gathered to meet to decide what to do with his manuscripts and his memoirs. So I, I wanted to make sure he his voice was somehow there, even though he was dead. And I think coming through a woman would show how much the public loved him, and especially somebody who would have learned how to read by studying Byron's words. And so I just thought the maid was a good person to be the voice of Byron during some sections to transition through the play. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about how, like, in the context of the play, she's such an outsider. She's not involved in the, until she's compelled to in some way, she's not involved in the decision making. She's not consulted. And so it's interesting to to give her that space to almost step outside of everything for a moment and give voice to the person being discussed. That's really interesting. And she gets to bring in some of the great lines of his poetry that the others say that we didn't read his poetry, we don't know his words. So it really is also about his celebrityness. So by having uh, the maid work with his words, we can see that he was, uh, you know, the common celebrity celebrated for his language, not just for his good looks or his stage acting or whatever, right? Is So I, I thought that was fun to play with. And we had some amazing actors to be able to uh, address the language that way and the accents and the class division, which Byron was always trapped between all these different classes and different genders and different orientations. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny too, like that it's very current today. Interesting. Say more. Um, well, we were just recently talking about in the news, all the stuff about our former president and his getting rid of documents and who has the right to get rid of those documents and the archive and uh, what should be done with presidential documents, even if it's a letter that's personal from you know another leader, what should be done with those documents? Well, he took a few of them home. Well, wait, and then all of a sudden he's surprised, no, those aren't yours, they are public. So there's a big discussion in this play on what's public, what's private. You know, what what should we be able to keep after we've gone, after we've died in this case, who has the right to those documents and you know what we the person's passed away, so who gets to decide? Yeah, and, and how do the people mentioned get to be in the controlling of the narrative that's about them? Right, and, and I do like those kinds of um, discussions. I should tell you a secret. I am a communication professor. Ooh. That is my main bread and butter. So 
I like communication issues. And one of the issues with this play I address is privacy management. Mm -hmm. How do I manage my own privacy in a world today where I tell a story on TikTok or Twitter or uh, how do I control that? Mm -hmm. But once it's out there, just do I have a right to control it? Or like, if I tell you a story, then do you have the right to share that story? Or we in do an activity together, what part of that is managed? What kind of boundaries do we put on that? Uh, what is the turbulence that happens when you break those boundaries? Mm-hmm. And you know, the couples, fan, friends, relatives, where relationships always deal with this privacy management. Yeah. Do it's, I want you to talk about those things? I don't know. It's been really interesting following. Um, I don't know if you. I don't know how ingrained in celebrity news you are. I am a, I am an ardent uh, reader of Dumois, et cetera. Um, but Kim Kardashian has just gone through this big divorce with Kanye West, who is um, unstable in, in a variety of ways. And he is making their divorce extremely difficult. And part of that is he's been sharing her their private text messages on Instagram. And, and it's text messages of her saying things like, can you please stop threatening my boyfriend? Can you please stop showing up at our children's parties like unannounced? And he's screenshotting them and posting them on his Instagram. And that's blowing things way up. And there's this very large conversation now about like, what, what, what is private? What, what do you get to share as one part of something? And what do the other people get to control? So it's very relevant. It's the Kardashians are talking about. It's very relevant. And how much time does that stay relevant for the Kardashians? You know, because in our play, we have Lady Byron. She's, oh, she was only married to Lord Byron for a year. Wow. Uh, So how many, how long does she have power over that year? You know? And she sued to keep the name, right? I think you said. Yeah. Yeah. Because it got her into places. And it was all about what circles you can get into with your name, you know, Kardashian, just say the name and you're going to get first seated, right? right? You'll get uh, upgraded to first class. You know, how long do you get to do that? Mm-hmm. How long should you be allowed to talk about those things? It's an X. When, when does that permission dissolve? Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? So it is fascinating too. And like your role, you played the maid. Mm-hmm. And so your ear is often to the door. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you have a right then to sell that information and share that information? I mean, you read those magazines and somebody had leaked some of that information. It's always sources close to the person say things like that. Somebody's talking. It's a cook. It's a a chef. It's a assistant. You know, somebody shared that. Otherwise we wouldn't know. And they get paid and pop out of the woodwork with a camera. You know, we didn't have cameras uh, in a really fast oil um, painting in the yeah, bush. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> because we talked about the possibility that Bridget was selling information and it hadn't occurred to me until you mentioned it, but then we talked about it and you, you said that somebody, somebody was doing that to Lord Byron before he died. He died in Greece. And while he was down there, you know, people were constantly s- selling 
little stories about him. Where is he now? Oh, he's in Puerto Veneri. Oh, he's uh, swimming up the uh, Cinque Terre. Oh, he's now battling over in Greece. It was celebrity news. I mean, it was TMZ in Greek letters. Uh, so there was always uh, an audience for that. And they loved that kind of uh, celebrity tip. He, he made fame famous. Wow. And he's so, so young. He did all of that in such a small amount of time. And partially uh, that kept him in money, that kept him in credit, that kept him going. And, you know, they would travel together. He and um, Hobhouse would travel together. And, you know, there was a lot to gain when you were in those positions because mm -hmm. you didn't have to work. You know, you made money by being a lord or a lady. So it is fascinating of, you know, should great artists leave behind what they have made and who then makes money off it because they're dead. Like recently Basquiat, they found some old paintings that they thought, they think they're not sure it might be Basquiat's. And you know, these could sell for millions, but who's gonna get the money off them? Basquiat's dead. I, well, I guess that's the whole deal with estates, but I, I could see it getting very complicated. Yeah, and who's the estate of Lord Byron? You know, he's buried yeah. in Westminster Abbey. So who gets it, the queen? I mean, she doesn't need the money. <laughs> And so it's sometimes best, like you use the idea of the crucible, it's, it's good to go back in time to better understand where we are. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of what Arthur Miller did with the crucible at the time to talk about the witch hunts, you know, for the House of Un-American Activities. And so in this case, we can see who has the right over some people's public documents. And, and what is a public figure? Yeah, and, and you know, it comes up all the time of what rights do public figures have once they become public figures? What do they owe their audience? What do they owe their consumers? And uh, it comes up when like an artist speaks out about politics and people are like, just stick to singing and dancing. You don't, you don't get to share how you feel about this or people who feel like performers owe them a stage door or a new album or information about what's coming up for them. Like there's an entitlement felt by the public once somebody becomes, somebody is no longer a member of the public, once they're, once they're a public figure. And they almost stop being people and start being institutions. Should we protect that reputation so that people can keep their cherishing uh, feelings about that celebrity? Yeah, what's more important, the truth or the story? Well, and you know, that's a good question of truth. You know, one person's truth in this story might have been altered by another person's truth. And we get to that kind of in the third movement of this play, when all the characters are finally in the room and they get to discuss what people are hiding. And we know that they're in the memoir. Mm -hmm. Should we let everything out, all those secrets? And some are are on of the camp that it should just be destroyed. Some are of the camp that it should be edited and carefully chosen what's revealed. And some are just let me put it out. Where if you were in the room, in this room with your characters, what would your contribution to the discussion be? How do you what do you think they should do with it? Well, that's why I wrote the play. Um, I don't have to take a position. <laughs> but if you uh, did, if <laughs> yeah, so so I think sometimes it's just as much fun to pose the questions. Uh, I think we would learn so much if we knew the biography of the last few years of his life, the same we would have done if we'd known the last few years of Shakespeare's lives. 
and all the different things he had done. Or if we even knew, you know, some current playwrights where they get their ideas. Mm-hmm. I would, I love to know those things. I love to be inside their workroom, inside the writer's desk and go, how did you do this? What did, how, where did you get this inspiration? I mean, that's kind of what we're doing right now. You know, you and I sitting yeah. here, but uh, it's great to know those things. And there is a, a hunger to know how craft is made, how a artwork is created. But if it harms people in the process of discussing them and how they inspired you to make a Frankenstein, and you realize, oh, he's basing that on his horrible monster daughter from an incestuous relationship, oh, maybe that's going to ruin somebody else's life should he talk about it. It's a, a fascinating problem. Yeah, when I think about my first instinct is, I'm I'm extremely information hungry all the time. And I love nothing more than like historical gossip. I love historical scandals and because I really like getting to know people from the past like they're real people, like like they're people. I like knowing the human interest aspects of their lives. So like my first thought is, oh my God, gimme, give gimme give the memoirs. I want to read them. But then I think about his daughter, and you bring up that spoiler alert when it's discussed that the possibility of waiting until everybody's passed on, we would also have to wait until the daughter is passed on because it would affect how she's treated in the world. They even have a great line in there where they say, why don't we just bury it? Mm-hmm. You know, like bury a casket and it is wrapped in a shroud and then somebody could go dig it up later or put it in a bank and somebody can open the vault, you know, in a hundred years. And yeah, and really should we be making money off of other people's lives, you know, because Byron wouldn't be making any money off of this. It's right. it's very parasitic, mm, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're living off of this thing, but if this, and in the process, they're eating this thing, right? Because there's only so many pages of this. And when those pages are finally all published, they don't have much left to then eat off of. And they might starve for a while until they go find another parasite to live off of. And so it's sad, but that's kind of the way the publishing system works. And we kind of show that Murray, the publisher, is a bit like that. And he's a bit parasitic. He survives off of the art of others. He doesn't actually create anything. Right. But then again, without him, would the art of others be be seen? What it be, right, because he's got that controlled. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting, the nature of celebrity wealth status, I suppose, and how, how it relates to the people around that person. Right. So in a way, everyone in this crucible, everyone in this room is parasitic. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to survive off of this, or they think that the disclosure of this information will destroy them. So it's a, it's but in a way, a lot of them also feel like Byron took something from them very much. Everyone has lost something Mm -hmm. by the end. Everyone feels that they have lost a love. And what's also kind of fun with this podcast play is that everyone's in a different relationship with Byron. So this occurs three days after the burial, and they all love in a different way. So they're all going through grief in their own way. Mm. Maybe if they'd waited a week, they would have changed their mind and 
approached this complex problem differently. So uh, grief sometimes makes us desperate and makes us do things we might not do. Like when you were talking about the divorce for the Kardashians, that pain makes you desperate and makes you do things you might not do. Because I'm sure they have a child that's going to be harmed by all this public information. Four. So four damages. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. I had forgotten the very front and center position of grief in this play, considering the fact that all these people loved this person, even though they felt a lot of anger towards him as well. And that it, and that he just died at 30. How old was he? Yeah, he's young. So he, would 30, mostly he died of like a pneumonia or something, didn't he? Yeah, and he was ever fighting in the war with Greece and Turkey, and you know he was he was very courageous and gung ho, and maybe high risk taker, maybe foolhardily, and you know to have a young man die so early also adds to the glamour mm -hmm. of the fame, yeah. right? Legendary. He would often swim naked off of the coast of Italy, you know, and. Those were the days you didn't do that. And everyone would be like, oh my gosh, you know, and discuss it. Yeah. But it was just enough tantalizing because you didn't have pictures. Your imagination could do wild, right. wild and think through all these things. So it's it's very relevant. Well, we I try to make it relevant. I think it's extremely relevant. And, you know, and they're drinking, they're drinking, they're drinking. And Especially as, the, Lady Byron. as this afternoon goes on, right, the alcohol starts to permit them or encourage them to open up and really lay their feelings on the floor. And we get to hear really why they're hurt. Yeah. And some people physically get hurt. Yes. There's high drama in this comedy. Yes. And it, it, the structure of the play is almost in one of those um, old style argument kind of plays mm -hmm. where they, you know, they have a nice well, setup. Yeah, it's all very lots of words and contained in a tight space with with volatile energy. Yeah, it's thrilling. I, I was when I first read the play, I was very excited to be involved because I think it's very funny, but it's also really thought provoking because you might have a response about how who you're siding with the first time you absorb the material. But then as you think about it more, and as you hear more people talk, it becomes far more complicated than a knee jerk reaction. Good, good. And and I think sometimes you finish and you go, Okay, I'm really clear about her position. Yeah. But I'm not so clear about his position. Mm -hmm. Why? What's he gain? Or what's he lose? And Figuring out people's motives is very natural, I think, in real life, where you just got to figure out, oh, what do they want? Now, the actors, they know what the, those clear lines are. But for the audience, it's like you're hearing it for one time, for the first time, to figure out what each of their positions are yeah. or is that each person has a separate position to go, oh, wait, why is that one want it published? Oh, it's not always a clean answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's a very messy situation, which is why it makes for a great play. It's the kind of play that like you'd go to the bar with your friends afterwards and have like a long discussion over drinks about what who should have done what. Yeah, and we should have those kind of conversations with our friends to say, okay, when I pass away, <laughs> can you do this for me? Those boxes that are under the bed, 
go grab them before mom and dad get there. <laughs> I have a I have a box at my mom's house in the basement of all my journals from like elementary school through high school and their journals and like short stories and i told my mom i was like if i die before you 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 have to burn those and she was like oh you're gonna be dead nobody cares and i was like no i don't even care that there's nothing salacious in them i'm just like i can't i don't nobody needs access to my 14 year old brain nobody needs it and how embarrassing that could be for you but if you're, you know, famous and you, you know, when you win your second Academy Award, oh, I'm you. going over to your mom's house. <laughs> and I'll be like, can we just take some snapshots of, you know, you by that me. point, if I get to that point, it's going in a locked safe that has like, will self-destruct upon, like, if and the heart at, rate stops, it will self-destruct. As Murray says, he's like, everyone can be bought. So. There might be some money that could go to, you know, knock at your mom's door, as the paparazzi often do, and say, here, I want those notes. My mother would never. <laughs> you hope. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, you... we're about to wrap up, but I'm curious if you had any interest in writing anything about any other famous writers or historical figures. Are there any other people from the past who pique your interest in a way that feels relevant? Uh, yes, I just finished a play about a disease called Chagas disease, which is a disease that Charles Darwin may have had. Oh, uh, and how it's currently a still it's a problem disease. And so it Charles Darwin kind of touched on touches in the play. Uh, but it's really more about the character of the disease. I like things that are, are relevant to today that are from the past that we learn about, but we also feel the drama. So I enjoy those kind of things. I also have another one about John Singer Sargent, the famous painter, and how he used a black model and he never painted him as black except one time. The rest of the time he painted him as white. And so it was a very racist behavior. Oh. And we start talking about, you know, does race matter? And John Singer Sargent said, no, of course not, of course not. But I think now it does, and they really need to uncover some of the behaviors of the past to show that we have need to respect the people that were under the painting. That sounds like a really interesting topic to explore as well, and very relevant. Well, thanks. We'll send it to you. Yay, yes, please. Or anyone out there who's listening, we can have any of these plays produced. Yes, just call in, send us your credit card number. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today, Kurt. A delight as always to chat with you. And uh, everybody who's listening, go listen to Stripping Lord Byron. And like Kurt said, listen to it twice because then you're going to pick up on things the second time. And then go to a bar or have people over or get on a Zoom room and drink with your friends and discuss who should be doing what. That's my opinion on how to consume the play. I think it's a great time, Alex. You know, it's good to have some wine while listening to this and maybe listening to some Irish tunes in the background. Yes. Irish melodies. Yeah. So um, uh, Murray wrote the Irish melodies and then Byron stole those and he ah. called them the Hebrew melodies. Oh, yeah. That's in the play. What a loud. It was, a, it was kind of an anti-Semitic act to do that. It's not great. Yeah, it's a bad guy. Sky Byron, you're, you're going to want to hear all about his memoirs. So definitely check out the podcast and enjoy it. 
<laughs> and Kurt, I look forward to seeing you again soon. See you soon. Thank you for listening, and a special thank you to our Patreon subscribers. Without you, we wouldn't be able to continue bringing content to audiences all over the world. For exclusive interviews, behind-the-scenes content, and even more radio shows, consider becoming a patron today. All links are available at our website at standbyforplaces.com.